Hello, everyone, and welcome to Homicide Hot Dish, where you get your scoop of true crime. I'm your host, Brittany. For today's recipe, I actually chose a soup instead, since it is soup season here in the Midwest. The soup is taco soup. If you like chili and tacos, this is literally both of them in a soup. It's not thick like chili, though, but you can always add crackers if you want. So for that recipe, check out our Facebook and Instagram pages, both titled Homicide Hot Dish Podcast. And now on to the homicide. Now this case is actually a little different than what we typically cover. Instead of a murder, at first anyway, it's a kidnapping, an attack, and a torture of a 15-year-old girl in 1978, California. And almost two decades later, there is a murder all the way on the other side of the United States in Florida. This is the attack of Mary Vincent. In the late 70s, it wasn't uncommon for people, especially teenagers, to hitchhike, and 15-year-old Mary Vincent was one of those teenagers. Mary is one of seven children, she is one of the middle children, and her family was living in Las Vegas at the time. Mary would have arguments with her parents, she was rebelling, she would cut classes, wear makeup, and she would run away from home. According to Seattle PI, one day Mary's sister had warned her that their father was coming home and he had one of his migraines again and was very angry. She told Mary, you better run. Mary says, quote, I left home to save my life. I wasn't to seek wild times. I didn't know anything about the world or the opposite sex, end quote. Mary had planned to hitchhike from Las Vegas to Corona, California, where her grandfather lived. Now, Mary did end up making it to California, but, obviously unplanned, she became homesick and decided to actually hitchhike her way back home to Nevada. On September 29, 1978, she made a sign that said, Heading South, and stands alongside a road in Berkeley, California, holding it up next to two other hitchhikers that were also going in the same general direction. Not long after, a blue van pulled up. Driving is a middle-aged, balding man with a bulbous nose and a beer belly whose clothes are clearly too tight. The man is 51-year-old Lawrence Singleton. The two hitchhikers alongside Mary ask him for a ride, and he says, Oh, sorry, I actually only have room for one. He looks at Mary and says, I could give you a ride if you want. Then they all notice his van is empty. How could he only have room for one with an empty van? According to an episode of I Survived, the two hitchhikers told Mary, Look, you really shouldn't go with him. If he's not willing to take others and just one female, that's not safe. But Mary just really wanted to get home. She says, quote, I couldn't live another day out alone, end quote. The man in the van notices that Mary's thinking. She's trying to decide if she should go with him or not. She is desperate to get home. Maybe the man is completely innocent and just wants to drop off one person instead of having to make an extra stop for the others. 
He says to her, hey, you know, I have a daughter about your age. He's trying to just make small talk with her and to get her more comfortable with him and sort of trusting of him. According to the I Survived episode, Mary says, quote, I didn't think about what type of person he was or the situation. I was just, I was tired, and he seemed like a grandfather type figure, end quote. Now, Singleton was, in part, telling the truth when he tried coaxing Mary into his van. He does indeed have a daughter about her age, but he no longer has a relationship with her. According to Ranker, Singleton wasn't the kind, innocent, normal man he made himself to be to Mary. His second wife had recently divorced him, he had a falling out with his daughter, who was actually afraid of him, and in the past, he had been convicted of contributing to the delinquency of a minor, and he had a history of being an alcoholic. Not long after, Mary got in his van, and she decided to light a cigarette on the way, and the smoke ended up actually making her sneeze, and when she did, Singleton reached over and felt her neck. He acted innocent and said, Oh no, you're not getting sick, are you? Clearly, this made Mary uncomfortable, and she pulled away from him and got as close to the door as she could, just so she was out of his reach. And that was just barely the tip of the iceberg of horrible events that would happen to Mary. But after a while, Mary began to feel more comfortable again. He hadn't done anything else strange to make her feel awkward, so she felt comfortable enough to fall asleep. But when she woke up, she looked out her window and knew something was terribly wrong. As she read the road signs that they were passing, they were telling her they're going the wrong direction. Panicking, she tells him, hey, you're going the wrong way and you know you're going the wrong way. He tells her he's sorry, it's an honest mistake, I must have made a wrong turn along the way, and he says, okay, I'm going to find a place to pull over so I can go to the bathroom and then we'll get back on track. Now, even though he tries to reassure her that it was just an honest mistake, Mary doesn't buy it, and she starts to think that she's really in trouble. According to People.com, he pulls off the freeway and starts driving down a deserted road. Again, he says he's just looking for a place to pull over so he can go to the bathroom. Mary looks over at him and thinks, Okay, I'm young, he's old. I'm healthy, he's not. I can outrun him and get away. But then she glances down at her feet and notices her shoelace is untied. How can she outrun him with an untied shoe? She waits until he stops the van, gets out, and shuts his door. Once he does, she opens her door and bends down to tie her shoe. And as she's doing this, she feels a powerful, searing pain in the back of her head. He had just hit her with a sledgehammer. She ended up blacking out from the powerful blow, and when she came to, she found herself in the back of his van with her hands tied behind her back. According to the I Survived episode, Singleton then immediately begins raping her. She asks him, why are you doing this to me? But he gives no response. According to People.com, after he was done raping her, Singleton, still naked himself, crawls from the back into the driver's seat and drives a few more miles down the road before stopping again. Here, he cuts her hands free and orders her to drink some type of alcohol that he had in a plastic jug. She does as he orders, and then he continues raping her. Mary says he raped her probably a total of six times. 
He raped her through to the next morning. The hours passed slowly and Mary was terrified, exhausted, and in pain from being raped numerous times. She was just begging and begging for him to just let her go and says, I won't tell anyone, just please let me go. Finally, she ended up passing out, most likely from not only the alcohol, but pure exhaustion. When she woke up, he ordered her to lie on the edge of the road. She pleads with him to let her free, and she's completely naked and bleeding. How could it get any worse? But it does. According to the I Survived episode, you can see some sort of harness or like straps that Mary is wearing on each shoulder. It almost looks like suspenders or like something leather. And through tears, Mary says, quote, And he said, You want to be set free? I'll set you free. And he pulled out a hatchet from his toolbox. And he took my left arm and took one swing. And I started to fall. And then he took another swing. And I grabbed his arm grabbed it real tight, and I couldn't figure out. I'm holding him real tight on his arm, but I'm still falling. I looked down at my arm, and there was nothing, just blood squirting out, end quote. He had just literally chopped off her left arm. She goes on to say, quote, I felt all the pain, the sharpness, the burning, and when my blood was leaking out of my body, I felt the hot ooze just flowing out of me. I felt everything. I was aware of everything, and the pain was so excruciating, end quote. Mary's left arm was severed just below the elbow. In her interview for the I Survived episode, we now know what those straps are around her shoulders. As she's talking, she holds a tissue with her prosthetic arm, and it's the hook-like type hands, and she holds a tissue with it to wipe away her tears as she's explaining how he took her arms. She says after he took her left arm, he took her right one. As he's trying to chop her right arm off, she's kicking and screaming, just hoping that somebody would be able to hear her. But she says because she was kicking and screaming so much, it took him longer to cut it off. She says once he was done and both her arms were gone, she was just laying there, bleeding. And she says she looked over and could see him sort of from a distance. And he was sort of like flicking his arm. And she couldn't figure out why he was doing that. Until she looked at the end of his arm and saw that her hand was still attached to him. He was literally trying to flick her arm off of his. Her body laid there, limp and bloody. She just laid still and didn't move. Singleton must have thought that she was dead because he loaded her back in his van and drove off. Then he stopped again. This time, he picked up her seemingly lifeless body and threw it 30 feet off a cliff into the Del Puerto Canyon. She ended up breaking four ribs from the fall, and he then went down and stuffed her body in a concrete culvert. Now, at this point, I think she's still sort of pretending to be dead, probably unconscious, afraid that if he finds out she's still alive, he'll finish the job. According to the I Survived episode, Singleton then got back in his van and drove off. But Mary said at this point, she didn't know he had left. She wasn't sure if he was still waiting or if he did leave or what he was doing. So she just laid there, bleeding to death. She's suffering severe blood loss and says she started to get tired at that point and cold. She lost so much blood that it sent her body into shock. Wiping more tears away, she says, quote, 
and all I wanted to do was go to sleep. But all I heard was a voice saying that I can't go to sleep. He's going to do this to somebody else and I can't let that happen, end quote. She couldn't let him get away with this and do the same thing to another woman. So she mustered whatever strength she could find. She stuck her arms in the dirt to pat the end of them so they wouldn't bleed out so much and she crawled her way back up the 30-foot cliff. It took her a while to climb back out, and once she did, night had fallen. It was dark, and she could barely see anything. She says if it wouldn't have been for the moon and stars, she wouldn't have been able to see anything at all. And when she gets to the top, she can hear a faint sound of traffic on the freeway. So she follows the noise, still naked, bloody, and completely exhausted. She just kept walking down this deserted road, holding her arms up to help slow the bleeding and to keep her muscles from falling out, desperate to find help. And now at this point, the sun is starting to rise. She had walked for three miles and finally sees a car coming. And as it gets closer and closer, she sees that it's a red convertible and there are two guys inside. She just yells, help me! And as soon as they get closer and closer and get a clear view of her, they end up driving off. They left her. She says, quote, But I mean, think about it. I have no hands now, and I'm covered from head to toe in blood. I look like something from a Fright Night movie. And they took off. So all I could think of was, I'm going to die out here because everyone's too afraid to even stop, end quote. But Mary isn't about to give up. She keeps walking down the road, and then she sees a second car. It ends up being a honeymoon couple that took a wrong turn and are lost. They immediately stop and help her get in their truck, and they race down the road. They got to a phone to call 911, and a rescue helicopter flew her to the hospital. Mary ended up losing over half the blood in her body, and the blood that was still in her was at a toxic level. According to the I Survived episode, Mary says, quote, But my body took it because I was, I guess I was that desperate to live, end quote. According to Salon.com, while laying in her hospital bed, Mary described her attacker to police. Now, I read that she actually underwent hypnosis to try to bring her memory back so she could describe her attacker in full detail, and it must have worked because she was able to give so much detail that when a sketch was made and released, a woman named Joanne Eversole, who was a housewife from San Pablo, California, called in. She said, that's my neighbor, Larry Singleton. And Joanne wasn't the only one to call in. Many others also called in to say it was Lawrence Singleton. And Mary was shown pictures of Singleton along with six other men, and she pointed out him immediately as the man who attacked her. When the community of San Pablo found out that Singleton was the man authorities are looking for, they couldn't believe it. He was such a nice, ordinary guy to them. How could he have done this? According to sfgate.com, on October 9, 1978, just 10 days after he picked up Mary while hitchhiking, he was caught in Sparks, Nevada and arrested for Mary's attack. He tells the police he's innocent, of course. According to Salon.com, when he's arrested, Singleton insists that Mary was a prostitute. He says two other hitchhikers were also in his van, 
One of them was conveniently also named Larry. He says the other Larry must have been the one to attack her while he was actually passed out drunk. He claims that he let one of the other hitchhikers drive the van while he drank. And he insists that he was framed. But the police don't buy it and arrest him. When Mary was released from the hospital, her parents took her home, and according to Seattle PI, Mary says her parents weren't actually much help. She says, quote, They couldn't handle it. They took it harder than me. I'm telling them I need you. But they couldn't do it. They were more interested in what they felt about what happened to me than what I felt, end quote. Mary was fitted with prosthetic arms, as I said earlier, the kind that have the hooks that clamp together for hands. She returned to school, but it was a school for the handicapped now, and she tried to adapt to her new normal. According to People.com, Mary says learning to use her new arms was hard, as would be expected. She says, quote, I wanted to totally give up, but whenever I said, I can't do it, I won't do it, and I don't want to, a very stubborn hospital therapist would say, you can, you will, and you must, end quote. She goes on to say, quote, there are times when it takes an hour or two to get myself together in the morning because I get so frustrated that I cannot stop crying, end quote. According to the LA Times, Mary was a remarkable dancer, and her instructor had even told her that she would make it professionally one day. That was until Singleton took her arms. They had to use parts from her leg to reconstruct and save her right arm, which meant dancing was now out of the question, at least professionally anyway. There went Mary's dreams. According to People.com, she started seeing a psychiatrist, and her dad actually started to collect guns and would come up with ways he would kill Singleton. Mary hated how her life was now. She didn't have the same friends anymore, and she says she felt like a public spectacle because people would say to her, Oh, you're the girl who had that accident. Mary just wanted to forget everything that had happened to her, but she wouldn't be able to. And six months after her attack, she had to see the man who did this to her again. But this time, it would be in court. Wearing her prosthetic arms, Mary took the stand. She pointed at Singleton and said, He did this to me. And then she told the jury everything that happened to her over the course of those two days in September of the year prior. According to Ranker, during the hearing, Lawrence Singleton still maintains his innocence. He says he never committed the crimes and says Mary's a prostitute and even calls her a, quote, $10 a night whore. But there was overwhelming evidence against him. Mary's blood was found on his axe, on his clothes. All the evidence pointed to him. And on March 29, 1979, a San Diego jury convicted him of kidnapping, mayhem, attempted murder, forcible rape, sodomy, and oral copulation. He was sentenced to 14 years prison. Yes, you heard me right, 14 years. The sentencing laws back then were so lenient that 14 years was the maximum sentence allowed at that time. According to MamaMia.com, Mary says, quote, When he was done testifying and I was leaving the courthouse, I had to pass him, just inches away, and I hear him say, if it's the last thing I do, I'll finish the job, end quote. It wasn't over for Mary. She was still fearful for her life now, and all he got was a measly 14 years. 
According to People.com, something she tried that would hopefully help her was going to schools and talking to kids about hitchhiking. She would tell them not to do it, it's not safe like everyone assumes, and she tells them her story. Now, you'd think that just by seeing her and knowing that this happened to her because of hitchhiking, it'd be more than enough to convince kids that it's not a good idea. But Mary gave up speaking in schools because kids would actually make rude remarks and they'd curse at her during her speaking events. She also joined victims groups, but they didn't help her either. She tried to seclude herself for many years. As soon as she graduated, she moved away. When she moved, no one in the community knew her past life. They just assumed she was born this way, the way she now looked. Then the unthinkable happens. In April 1987, after serving just over half of his 14-year sentence, Mary finds out that Singleton is being released on parole. According to the New York Times, he was being released for good behavior and due to his participation in a work-study program, and he still claims he never did the things to Mary that he was convicted of. When Mary found out he was getting released, she was even more terrified, and the nightmares that were finally gone had started to come back. According to Blurred By Lines, there was even one occasion Mary had actually broken her ribs from jolting awake during a nightmare. Mary's nightmares were so violent that she's thrown out of bed and ends up injuring herself many of the times. Now, unfortunately for Singleton, when he was released on parole, not one single community in California would accept him, and with good reason. I mean, who would want this man living next door? Authorities ended up having to place him in a mobile home at the San Quentin State Prison until his parole was up a year later on April 25, 1988. According to the Napa Valley Register, after Singleton was released on parole in 1987, where he then lived in that mobile home in San Quentin Prison, Mary had complained to police that she was getting threatening phone calls, and a man named Bob Clayton, who describes himself as Mary's bodyguard, says the police basically told them it isn't Singleton. He says, quote, Oh, it's your imagination. He's too old to do anything, they told us. End quote. Now, as I mentioned, Singleton continues to insist that he did not attack Mary, and he is saying he was actually the victim here. According to the LA Times, in 1988, just a couple weeks before being released, he pursued that claim that Mary actually kidnapped him just a few short hours before she was attacked by the other Larry, or so he claims, and he files a complaint against her. His reasoning is that he is suing Mary for forcible kidnap for the purpose of robbery. In the complaint, he states that he picked up Mary in Berkeley, California, and agreed to take her to Reno, Nevada, on the way, she began smoking PCP, which is a hallucinogen. He says they stopped for gas in Auburn, and she wanted to go to Los Angeles then. And for whatever reason, he says she became abusive towards him and poked him with a three-foot surveyor stick that she had. He says he then drove her to Galt, California, where he picked up two male hitchhikers. The two hitchhikers, along with Mary, stole money from him to buy drugs. He then headed north and left Mary in a, quote, low-rent district in Sacramento and never saw her again. 
He says, quote, I wouldn't be a normal human being if I didn't work myself into a rage when I think of how I was treated in the courts and also in the media. I have spent 10 years of my life in prison, each day being taunted and threatened, end quote. Now, not listed in his complaint, but something that Singleton has said many times, is that he claims he let one of the hitchhikers drive his van so that he could drink the alcohol that he had brought along. He says at one point he passed out and that when he woke up, Mary was gone, but her clothes were still in his van. Kind of contradicting to his complaint where he states he dropped her off in a low-rent district. I would assume she would have been wearing clothes if he dropped her off. But he says the two hitchhikers had committed the crimes against Mary, not him. But authorities don't believe that these two male hitchhikers that he gave a ride ever even existed. According to People.com, Singleton says he isn't bitter towards Mary, he actually has compassion for her, and that he even had a difficult time filing the complaint. Insert eye roll. He says, quote, I almost vomited three times and I couldn't sleep for several nights, end quote. He said he had to file the complaint because it was the only way to clear his name. Now, like I said, his complaint is absolutely ridiculous. Mary's blood was found on his hatchet, it was on his clothes. But according to a San Francisco psychologist named Dr. Chris Hatcher, it's not uncommon for a criminal to file a complaint against his victim. He says, quote, It's the sort of extreme denial that says it's really the victim's fault, end quote. Now, all in all, his complaint was found to be ridiculous, and the courts dismissed it. According to the LA Times, when Singleton was released on parole, Mary lived in fear that he would find her and kill her. She says, quote, Whenever I hear his name, I go into a panic. So to anyone who is ever around me, I say, Don't say that name. I don't watch this on television because if I ever see a picture of him, I just start shaking, end quote. Mary never even uses his name. Instead, she just refers to him as her attacker. After he was released and out of the mobile home in the San Quentin prison, Singleton moved to the Tampa, Florida area, which is where he grew up. According to the LA Times, Florida was a bit like California at first for him. No one seemed to want him there. One person even offered him $5,000 to leave Florida entirely, and a homemade bomb was even detonated near his home that he moved into, although no one was injured. But eventually, it seemed the community was willing to give him a chance. Maybe he had changed, and some even thought, maybe he's innocent. According to Salon.com, when Singleton moved to Florida, he started to refer to himself as Bill. And I assume this was in an attempt to sort of get rid of his infamous name for the crimes he committed in California against Mary. According to the New York Times, Tom Bennett was a next-door neighbor to Singleton while living in Florida. He says, quote, We were scared of him at first, but every day he'd talk to you. He'd cook steaks and bring them to you. He fixed up his property really good. He was the neighbor you dream of. I started to believe him. Maybe he was framed, end quote. Singleton made himself seem like an innocent, normal, kind old man. He lived alone, he spent most of his time remodeling his home and landscaping in order to kind of make his property more appealing in the neighborhood. 
According to the New York Times, many of his brothers and their wives would visit him often, and he had a dog, a Rottweiler. He would help his neighbors out if they needed, and one time he offered to repair a mailbox for one neighbor. So it seemed like he was your typical small neighborhood friendly elderly man. Many of his neighbors actually didn't even know who he really was, but a woman named Georgia Polston did know about his past in California. She says, quote, We didn't like the idea that something had happened, but you can't make a big thing about it if you want to give people a chance. End quote. She actually knew Singleton when he was a young boy living in Tampa, so I think she maybe was a little bit biased of the person she thinks he is. But there was one person Singleton was once close with who didn't believe he was innocent at all. And that person is his daughter, Deborah. According to Ranker, Deborah feared him, just as Mary did. When Deborah found out he was getting let out of prison, she hid, just as Mary did. She even contacted police asking if there is any way possible that they can just keep him in prison longer. Deborah says, quote, I asked California prison personnel what could be done to keep him in longer, and I was told there was nothing. They suggested I obtain a restraining order at the time of his release. Sorry, but I mean this quite sarcastically. I tell you he is a danger. I said that before the first crime. I've changed my name multiple times and am moving across state lines, and you all suggest a piece of paper that will tell him exactly where I am, what my name is, and not to come within, say, 300 feet of me, end quote. Now, Mary ended up getting married in the mid-80s, but she would end up divorced just three years later. According to the LA Times, she ended up having two sons, and unfortunately, they had a pretty rough time trying to make it as a family, and she was afraid to stay in one place too long for fear that Singleton would be able to find her. So, she kept moving around and even spent a cold winter in an unheated, abandoned gas station with her two sons. After her divorce, she overborrowed for a down payment on a home, and it was repossessed just months later. According to the LA Times, Mary did actually win a $2.5 million judgment against Singleton, but unfortunately, she wasn't able to collect anything because Singleton was unemployed, he was in poor health, and he had only $200 in his savings. She says, quote, I've tried so hard and been turned back so often. My stride is totally different now. All my energy is focusing on my two boys. I'm desperately trying to do everything I can to make the life that I promised to them, to make the life I had all these hopes for in my own mind, end quote. Now, as if things couldn't get worse for Mary... In 1990, she was in an auto accident where she received a small settlement from. And unfortunately, the federal government ruled this as income and her disability check stopped, which was terrible timing because the hooks on her prosthetic arms had just stopped working. And a new set at that time cost $15,000, which Mary did not have. A local handyman helped her to keep her prosthetic arms just barely functioning. Now, as I mentioned, she got married, but ended up divorced a few years later, and I believe she was actually divorced either the year of Singleton's release or the year prior, but
But according to Seattle PI, after Mary and her first husband divorced, she stayed close with his mother. I'm assuming she didn't have a relationship with her own parents after she graduated and moved away. She says, quote, I needed a mom and I found one. It's my mother-in-law, Pat Platt, who lives nearby. When anyone asks me if I'm close to my mom, I say yes, because Pat's my mom now, end quote. At least Mary had one person she was close with who she probably felt the sense of home and safety with. Now, as for Singleton, sure, he had his neighbors who seemed to pretty much trust him, and those who did know about what he was convicted of seemed to get past it, but he wasn't the innocent man he told everyone he was. He was indeed a criminal. In 1990, he was arrested for petty theft. According to the Napa Valley Register, he was arrested for stealing a $10 camera from a drugstore and a few months later, he stole a $3 hat from Walmart. Now, even though these aren't serious crimes, they're still crimes, which makes him a criminal. According to sfgate.com, he served 48 days in jail. After that, the years passed by, and he still seemed like the normal, kind, old neighbor next door. But then, the tight-knit community where he lived got the shock of their lives. One day in January 1997, neighbors noticed something very strange going on in his driveway. His vehicle was sitting in the drive, and he was in it, just sitting there. They noticed a hose attached to the tailpipe that led through the window into the vehicle where he was sitting. Singleton had taken a dryer hose and attached it to the tailpipe of his vehicle and was breathing in the exhaust. He was trying to kill himself. Now, why he was doing it in broad daylight for all the neighbors to see is beyond me. According to the Napa Valley Register, he ended up spending a week in the St. Joseph's Psychiatric Care Center, and his own family had actually asked doctors there to have him involuntarily committed. Singleton underwent a prison psychiatric evaluation that even stated he is so out of touch with his hostility and anger he remains an elevated threat to others' safety inside and outside of the prison. A commitment petition was even drafted, and two psychiatrists at the center signed it, stating that he posed a real and present threat of substantial harm to his well-being. A court hearing was set for February 13th, 12 days after his suicide attempt. But that would never happen, because on February 10th, he signed himself out of the center. And unfortunately, St. Joseph's could not legally hold him without a court order, and the hearing was canceled. Then, on February 19, 1997, nine days after he walked out of the care center, he invited a woman over to his home. According to the Napa Valley Register, it was 31-year-old Roxanne Hayes, a mother to three children, ages 11, 7, and 3. Roxanne was a prostitute who worked the same park bench every day while her children were at school or at daycare. She didn't hide what she did. The police knew very well who she was, and one Tampa policeman named Scott Bruce said, quote, she was on the street for her kids, end quote. Another prostitute says she once asked Roxanne how she spends her money, and Roxanne said, I use it for rent and diapers. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, Singleton had many renovations done to his home. Some he had done himself and some he had hired to have done. According to the New York Times, around 6 p.m. that night, February 19, 1997, a man who had done some renovation work for Singleton stopped by. I believe it was a painter. And he heard some commotion from inside Singleton's home. So he looked through a window to see what was going on. He sees Singleton and a woman, both naked. The woman is obviously Roxanne. And Singleton was choking and punching her as she cried for help. The man ran away as soon as he saw what was going on and called 911. According to the Napa Valley Register, when a sheriff's deputy arrived, he knocked on the front door and Singleton answered, and he was covered with blood. The deputy asks him, what's going on? Why are you covered in blood? And Singleton says, oh, I was cutting up vegetables and I cut myself. The deputy then peeks around the front door and sees Roxanne's lifeless, nude body covered in blood on the living room floor. Singleton was immediately placed under arrest. Roxanne had been stabbed multiple times. One of those times was through the heart. There was blood everywhere, all over Singleton's new carpet, all over his sofa. It was a gruesome sight. According to the Napa Valley Register, the police immediately think, what was Roxanne doing here? Yeah, they knew she was a prostitute, but she was a professional prostitute. She knew what she was doing, and she knew how to stay safe, for the most part. It was strange that she would willingly go to the home of a John, which is what prostitutes call their clients. But another prostitute had said, quote, You don't think a 70-year-old man is going to stab you to death. End quote. But police wanted to be sure why Roxanne was at Singleton's house, so they went to speak with her longtime boyfriend. According to the New York Times, he says through tears that he only knew Roxanne had left their house to go grocery shopping. He didn't know she was going to Singleton's, and it's believed that Roxanne was going to the grocery store like her boyfriend said, but that she decided to make some fast cash from a trick with Singleton which a trick is what they call their, I guess, act of prostitution. In February 1998, a year after Roxanne's murder and 20 years after Mary Vincent's attack, Singleton found himself in court again. And it wasn't only Roxanne's family he had to face. According to an article put out by Seattle PI, the state of Florida actually flew Mary down to testify at the trial. This time, Mary wasn't afraid when she pointed to Singleton as the man who took her arms and raped her. In an interview, Mary says, quote, I wanted to see his eyes. Eyes are important. When he was on top of me, I was looking at the axe, trying to stay alive. I asked later if I could look him in the eye, but it didn't happen, end quote. As Singleton, now 70 years old, testified, Roxanne's children and her boyfriend sat in the second row having to hear what happened to the woman they love. According to CBS News, Singleton told the court that he and Roxanne ended up fighting for control of a knife when it ended up actually plunging seven times into Roxanne's face, chest, and stomach. Singleton claims that, remarkably, Roxanne actually remained silent each time the knife entered her body. Singleton says, I was depressed, I was drunk, I was over-medicated, and I decided to pick up Roxanne. He says he had actually met Roxanne a few months prior to her murder. 
He brought her home to his house and paid her $20 for oral sex. Both he and Roxanne were naked and he handed her $10 for a cab ride home when he says she suddenly grabbed for his wallet. He tried fighting to get it back, but she picked up a knife that he kept on the living room table that he used to cut up vegetables while he would watch TV. He says they struggled for about 30 seconds and that he was trying to pull Roxanne's arm down, away from him, so that she wouldn't stab him and so he could try to grab the knife from her. But he says each time he pulled her arm downward to pry the knife away, she would end up stabbing herself, literally every time. He claims he didn't even actually realize that she had been stabbed at all until she laid on his sofa, dying. And he says something strange now. He claims she asked him to hold her in his arms as she lay dying on his sofa. He says, quote, She put both her arms around me and asked me to hold her, so I held her tight. We were embracing, end quote. At that point, he says he realized he needed to get her help. He was going to call 911, but said he picked up the remote for the TV by mistake and quickly threw it down when he realized it wasn't the phone. He then says, quote, I told her, we've got to get to the hospital, end quote. He tried to help her walk to the door, but his knee went out and they collapsed on the floor. He says, quote, I sat there and cried and rubbed her face and tried to talk to her, end quote. But it was too late because she was dead. According to the Los Angeles Times, he still denied raping and mutilating Mary Vincent at his hearing, though. But regarding Roxanne's stabbing, he says, quote, I'm sorry about the death in this case. I'll have to carry it on my conscience the rest of my life, end quote. According to the Napa Valley Register, Singleton's attorney, John Skye, asked for jurors to forego the death penalty and insisted that they instead give him a sentence of life in prison. He says, quote, Rather than hearing a news story about how the state of Florida fried Lawrence Singleton, we can hear a story like this. Lawrence Singleton died in his jail cell today, lonely and alone and despised, end quote. After less than four hours of deliberating, the jury comes back with a verdict, guilty of first-degree murder, and his sentence, death. Singleton showed no reaction when the verdict was read, and, as something that always happens, of course he appeals. He says he didn't get a fair trial because of his notoriety for the crimes committed in California against Mary Vincent, where again, he still says he's innocent, but I think we all know better. And even though he tried to appeal, he was denied. In 2001, his sentence of the death penalty was upheld. According to sfgate.com, Assistant Attorney General Scott Brown said, quote, he had a deeply ingrained hatred and dislike of women, end quote. So, where is Lawrence Singleton today? Well, on December 28, 2001, at age 74, he died. But he ended up dying before an execution date had even been set. His cause of death was actually cancer. Now, even though he wasn't executed, he was still dead. I think most people thought this would bring a huge sense of relief for Mary Vincent. But Mary says even when she found out he had died, she still wasn't okay. According to MamaMia.com, Mary says, quote, I needed to know what was in that dark soul of his. I felt I was robbed of that opportunity. But because of my sons, I saw the relief on their faces 
that made me realize, okay, that's good enough closure for me. I don't have to worry about my son's lives anymore, end quote. Now, as for Mary, she ended up being very good at something that I don't think anyone, especially herself, ever expected. Mary ended up sort of turning to art to help herself cope. According to an article from Seattle PI, one night, Mary says she couldn't sleep, so she got up and she decided to draw. She drew a picture of herself, and she got so many details right on point with her face. How she was doing this with her hook hands was remarkable. She knew she was very good at it, and so did others. But her prosthetic arms weren't really mobile enough for her to really be able to excel and draw using all different motions. So Mary found some spare parts from refrigerators, an old stereo system, and she actually modified her prosthetic arms. According to the Seattle PI, she says, quote, I love to tinker. So did my grandfather. He was an artist too. I guess I get it from him, end quote. Most of Mary's artwork is very fitting with what she's all been through. It's mainly drawings and images of powerful-looking women, like female action figures. Mary's artwork is so good that some of it is even valued at over $2,000. Mary's life seemed to finally turn for the better. She had moved to Orange County and became a clerk in the local district attorney's office, where she actually met an investigator who she ended up marrying. She was more stable and became more outgoing and even formed the Mary Vincent Foundation to help victims of traumatic crimes such as the ones she went through. Now, as I said earlier, when Singleton was released early, there were so many communities that were in an uproar. Singleton, now known as the Mad Chopper, had almost taken the life of a teenager just trying to get back to her family and he just got a slap on the wrist. And in the end, he actually did succeed in killing a woman. So, because of his early release, a new bill was created, called the Singleton Bill, which changed the maximum 14-year sentence to a 25-years-to-life sentence for offenders who commit crimes involving torture. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Homicide Hot Dish. Be sure to check out our Instagram and Facebook pages, again, both titled Homicide Hot Dish Podcast, for up-to-date content and when our future episodes will be released. 